our needs and, and our uh, cares to God. Heavenly Father, uh, we lift up the, the city of Cleveland to you this morning as tensions just continue between law enforcement and the community. Uh, specifically, we just want to lift up the, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives that are meeting uh, in Cleveland this week to discuss how to engage with the community and reduce and prevent crime. We pray, God, that this conference would, would serve not only our, our city well in, in equipping the leaders to better engage with community leaders to reduce the tensions between law enforcement and the community, but also, Lord, that, um, that through just and faithful acts um, on both sides, that, that your gospel would be known and would be able to be spread more throughout this city. Father, we um, want to lift up the country of Italy to you this morning. Even though over 80% of that country would claim to be Christians, Lord, it seems that most people are more culturally Christian and may be specifically Catholic than faithful practitioners, as recent studies have shown that only about 3% of the population faithfully practice Christianity. We pray, God, that your gospel would spread in that country, that the mistrust of the church, specifically the Catholic church, would not deter people from seeking the truth of who you are. And that we pray that you would stomp out the growing movements of Satanism and pagan practices that are starting to lure the population away from you and your truth. We pray that your truth would become known in their hearts. We pray for a cooperation amongst the, the various church groups in Italy as it becomes more important for them to set aside the little differences that they may have so that progress can be made for the sake of the gospel. And we pray that you would raise up leaders and bring believers into the church that would reinvigorate the passion of the people that live there. And Father, we just uh, lift up our service to you uh, this morning. And we, we lift up Ben, um, that, he, that you would uh, speak through him uh, and that you would allow him to preach faithfully your word and that your word, Lord, would inspire the hearts of us all here today. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray. Amen. Well, we are on in our ongoing uh, series uh, in Isaiah, just some select passages in Isaiah that we've been doing um, from time to time when Pastor Chris is not preaching. We're on our third message of that this morning as uh, Ben will come up to uh, preach to us from Isaiah. Good morning. All right, so today we are continuing on with Isaiah, as Zach uh, stated, and we are in uh, just past uh, where Ryan left off um, last week, which is Isaiah 49, 14, and we'll be reading all the way through 50, uh, verse 3. Um, so if you would, we're going to take a look at this passage. So join me, open your, your Bible or click swipe or tap or get to it however you so choose. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you to waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, The place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce, with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, your iniquities, for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, my rebuke <coughs> I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. So today's passage depicts a deflated Israel and God's response to that deflation. The overarching structure of the passage can be broken most simply into Israel's questioning of God's presence and care for his people, which we see in verse 14. Um, and then the rest of the passage covers God's response to that question. Taking a look at verse 14, the Israelites' feelings are expressed really simply. They feel as though God has forsaken them. They feel like he's forgotten about them, and they feel like he has abandoned them. 
It's really a stark contrast to the end of last week's passage uh, where we see in verse 13, the servant's triumph is inspiring unprecedented, unprecedented joy, which it absolutely should. And the contrast between uh, verse 13 and verse 14 um, serves as a literary mark that lets us know we're no longer discussing the servant and we've moved on to talking about Israel itself. So the first question would be, why does Israel feel that God has abandoned them? And Ryan dove into this a little bit last week, um, but I'll reiterate just a little bit of context that should shed some light for us. First off, from what I could gather when I was reading the passage and studying uh, the passage, I think it would be dishonest to pinpoint this prophecy to a specific event in Israel's history. Um, I've read some information and commentaries that pointed to the Assyrian threat like was brought up last week or the Babylonian exile, which was brought up last week. But the most logical and supported information that I was reading um, supported that there really wasn't enough evidence to link the passage to any one event. Um, And we'll get into that a little bit um, as we move on. But regardless of the exact timing uh, that this prophecy was written for, Uh, Like we discussed last week, we know that Isaiah was written around the time of a few different events, including the Assyrian threat and the Babylonian exile. And both of these events were extremely tragic for Israel. Um, And each one could have absolutely individually or collectively contributed to the Israelites' feeling that God has abandoned them. But even if we weren't focused on specific events to provide background to this passage— On an even larger time scale, we know that the time period Isaiah was written in is well after the promise that was provided to Abraham, which, to jog anyone's memory, was that the world would be blessed through his descendants. Um, And we're a ways out from the fulfillment of the promise promise made to David, uh, that salvation would be provisioned through his throne and through his family line, ultimately being fulfilled through Jesus. As a whole, this era was a time of serious doubt in Israel's history. And you can see that in much of the Old Testament, Israel doesn't hear from God very often in this time period. And whether that's due to God or due to Israel, we'll talk about a little bit further as well. Um, But taking all of these things into consideration with extremely tragic events and a lack of visible or tangible fulfillment of awesome promises that have been provided by God to his people, I think we can definitely start to see maybe why Israel is feeling a little bit abandoned. Outside of this first verse, the rest of the passage is filled with God assuring Israel that he hasn't forgotten them and that he hasn't abandoned them. And he does this by focusing on three main points, which will be the three points that I try and highlight in my sermon today. Those points are God is faithful to remember his children. The second is God is God faithfully carries out his plans for his children. And the third is that God is faithful to the relationship with his children. So for the first point, um, which is God is faithful to remember his children, God sets us to provide uh, really reasoning as to why he hasn't forgotten his people. Uh, He first addresses this by bringing up an example of how he feels towards Israel Uh, by making a comparison to that of a mother. 
The reasoning behind this is that it's almost unimaginable that a mother could ever forget her own child. A mother's bond with her child extends in its depth and richness beyond that of other relationships. And God states how a mother is driven towards compassion for her children by her very nature. And her distress drives her towards provision. But God states that he forgets his children even less. He states, unlike mothers of this world who, despite the relationship they form with their children, do still have the ability to forget and to cast off their children, but God cannot and will not forget his children. He goes on to clarify even further with another example, though we probably don't do this much anymore due to the fact that really technology has kind of uh, surpassed this, this methodology. Um, I can remember when I was younger um, and I needed to remember something and I didn't have a cell phone, I would write it on my hand. Um, And like most of you, I'm sure we'd use varying pens to do this, some with uh, more success than others. Um, There's always those pens where you'd write it and you'd be like, wow, that's really set, that's really good. And then you'd look at your hand later and it's smudged beyond recognition. Um, So you're just kind of left there hoping that you remember what you originally wrote. Or you're like me and you forget that it was there and you wash your hands and you shower and then you just forget it altogether. Well, God says he similarly has inscribed his people on his hand. But his inscription is permanently carved and it can't be removed. Unlike the reminders on our hands that were written in pen and eventually are removed from our skin completely, God's reminder is ever present before him of his people. And God doesn't just leave it at these metaphors of a mother or of writing on his hand. He backs them up by unveiling that he has plans for Israel. Plans that haven't occurred yet. First, he plans to rescue Israel from all who have sought destruction and laid waste to their land. God will drive those enemies far from Israel, and when he has done that, God plans to restore Israel from its wounds it has incurred, both from a physical standpoint and from the standpoint of how many people have left Israel. He brings up builders making haste. Oh, I lost my place. To rebuild areas of Israel that have been devastated by tragedy, such as their city walls. But he also brings up that he'll be gathering people to Israel and that those people will be welcomed and adored like a bride welcomes her dress on her wedding day. Multiple times in the passage, we see God bring up that their land will be too narrow to uh, house its inhabitants, which is referencing the sheer number of people that God is planning to bring to Israel. The inclination with the phrasing is that Israel's state of of desolation and being laid to waste um, leaves Israel in a state where there won't be enough room for all of the inhabitants that God plans on bringing in. And this description doesn't appear to be referencing just a few thousand people, and that's partly why I feel that it's a little bit disingenuous to pinpoint it to any one of the events um, because we know the number of people that were in Israel at the time of God restoring Israel after those events and it was really in the thousands. Um, But this number of people uh, being referenced seems to be much greater than that. 
Um, and it seems to be pointing to an event um, in Israel's history then uh, that'll be even greater than those miracles of bringing the Israelites back um, and restoring them from either of those events. So why does God bring these plans up to Israel? Well, I'm not sure about you, but when I make plans to do something with someone, I'm not exactly trying to forget about them. Uh, In fact, I think everyone would say that I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to be in their life. If I make plans with people for something important in my life that I'm really looking forward to, um, like the men's retreat on September 22nd through the 24th, you wouldn't say I'm abandoning those men or forgetting about them, even if there is a time period between now and then where I don't communicate or have any interaction with them. And yeah, that was definitely a plug for the men's retreat. Uh, And you really should prove that you're not abandoning the men of this church by going on that retreat. Um, Don't give in to peer pressure, but I would like to see you on the men's retreat. Um, Regardless of that, in the same way that our plans reveal our intentions of our commitment to others, We see God portray that in just the fact that he still has plans for Israel, he can't possibly have forgotten or abandoned them. And I will say as well that he strategically chooses to share these particular set of plans with Israel um, as an encouragement not just that he remembers them, but also that he has big and joyous plans for them in the future. And I think this should really serve as a great encouragement to us. Even though this prophecy was directed at Israel, Israel is a nation chosen by God and is God's people. We are also God's people. As through the new covenant provision to us through Jesus' death on the cross, we know that salvation provided to us by God extends beyond nationality and was made available to the Gentiles as well. We know that through the new covenant to become a part of God's people, all we have to do is believe in the message of the gospel and surrender to him as Lord. And with that understanding, we can read this prophecy and any other prophecy and learn about how God treats and interacts with Israel, knowing that he interacts with us the same way. So this passage should give us confidence knowing that God doesn't leave our side and does not forget about us. God thinks of us as a parent thinks of their child. He has engraved us on his hands, and that engraving does not wash away. And his plans for us are wonderful and joyous. God is faithful to remember his people. And then times in your life when you're feeling distant, or when you're feeling lost, or when you're feeling alone, do you rest in knowing that God is with you and that he does not forget you? As we keep reading, we see God is aware of the responses people will have when eventually he carries out his plans to increase the inhabitants of Israel. And I don't think their response to that plan being carried out should really come as much of a surprise and that they're not filled with joy and jubilation and excitement. Uh, Their first response is to question who brought so many people into Israel and how were they brought there? And this question sets God up 
perfectly for his next rebuttal to Israel's claim of his forgetfulness, which is our second point, God faithfully carries out his plans for his children. God answers the Israelites' questions by stating that it's by his sovereignty and power that Israel will be overflowing with people. He states that he'll accomplish it by lifting his hand and raising a signal that will cause the nations to bring their people to Israel. By God's power, we see nations performing his will just at the raising of his hand. Israel will also question who raised those who are joining their nation, which is answered here when God says it was kings who were their foster fathers and queens who were their nursing mothers. So we see even the most powerful figures from foreign nations will be bowing their faces to the ground and licking the dust from the Israelites' feet. What God is saying here implies a miraculous transformation from the foreign nations around them, from enemies to supporters and allies. And at this point in Israel's history, this would be extremely hard to believe. A transformation like this could really only be accomplished through a miracle, could only be accomplished through God's hand. So God continues by backing his ability to do this through answering the rhetorical question of whether prey or captives can be taken from the mighty oppressors who originally took them. And he answers with an obvious and emphatic yes. He will oppose the oppressors and ransom his redeemed. He'll enter the course of history, bring a violent end to the forces of of evil, and establish a redeemed people for himself. He will never forsake his people. The plans God lays out here for his people are greater than anything that his people would have imagined for themselves at the time, but they simply couldn't see it feasibly occurring. There are just too many obstacles in the way. With tragedies occurring, with other nations focusing their enmity at Israel, with their own sin and distance, they currently feel from God, how could God restore and bring so many people to their nation? But God takes the time to sit with them and explain and assure them that through, and he assures them through Isaiah that it will happen. He clears up any doubts that they have. And I think we easily fall into the same trap the Israelites fall into. God has an incredible plan for your life, but it's easy to fall in the pattern of thinking that we just have X or Y that will prevent us from doing those things. Maybe the Spirit has convicted you to utilize some of your gifts, your gifts for something in ministry. Maybe you can start leading a growth group or maybe God has called you to lead a, a message at a prayer service. Maybe God has called you to start helping with hospitality or connections or take a Sunday and sit with the, the children um, in the children's ministry. But you've convinced yourself that there are barriers like you don't have enough time with the busyness of work or you've convinced yourself that you're not qualified or cut out to be able to do it. Maybe you felt a tug on your heart to reevaluate your current pursuits in life because God's calling you to something else Maybe he needs you on the mission field or in vocational ministry. 
or just in a new career altogether because he wants you to use your gifts to further his kingdom in a new group of people, a new circle of employees, a new circle of students. But you feel like the thought of that is just too uncomfortable to even consider. Maybe even more cynically, we haven't really spent much time thinking or praying on what God has for our life because we know that it might be something that we don't want to do. So instead, we distract ourselves from even entertaining the idea of the plans that God might have for our life. And maybe there's someone in our lives that might prevent us from making the decision to follow God's plan for us because we're afraid of what they might think or what they might do if we drop what we have for our life and pick up what God has. We should take comfort knowing from this passage that God will faithfully and by his own power bring to fruition the plans he has for his people and he will contend with the enemies and the barriers that prevent those plans from occurring. Not only that, but we should understand from the plans that God shows to Israel that his plans for us are much greater than the plans that Israel had for them. So ignoring them and going with the plans that we have for our own life is just missing out on the greatness that God has. This brings us to our third point, which is that God is faithful to the relationship with his children. And this point is covered in the three verses we read uh, um, in chapter 50, where God explains how even though Israel feels abandoned by him, it's absolutely not because God abandoned them. God addresses this first by bringing up an example relating to divorce. Um, And we see in Jewish tradition, as we can see in many areas of the Bible, like Deuteronomy 24 or Jeremiah 3, when a divorce occurs, a man needs to provide a written document or a certificate to the woman he plans to divorce. But God points out, he hasn't provided anything like this to his people. He's not made it known to them that in any way he was cutting the relationship off. And then he uses a second example that relates to debt. In different areas of the Old Testament, there are examples of men selling their children, their wives, or himself into slavery. And they do this to pay a creditor uh, for their severe debt. But does God really have debt he needs to pay? I mean, is it even possible for God to be indebted to someone? And if it was, who could he be indebted to? And on top of that, What could the debt be for? Of course, God doesn't have debt, so he therefore has no reason to sell his people away. And if God didn't remove himself from his people, why then was there distance between Israel and God? Well, we see plain as day at the end of verse 1, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. See, the hardships that Israel endures are not due to the failures of God. They sinned their way into enduring times of trial. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, it's no secret that this time period for Israel was not her best and brightest. It was primarily marked by leader after leader pioneering new ways 
to disregard the call from God. They constantly ignored prophecy. They sought the favor of the gods of neighboring nations. They pursued selfish and worldly pleasures to the point of making them cultural staples for generations. This time of history, as we discussed earlier, is so far after the promises given to Abraham and David that it was easy to fall into the temptation to no longer put trust in either of those promises, regardless of God's track record, and instead turn to worldly promises, building the wrath of God and incurring judgment on themselves. And this is who Israel was for a long period of time, and every bit of God's wrath was deserved for them. Not only does God point out that the separation between him and his people is caused by their sin, he goes a step farther, giving Israel no recourse to say that it was in any way God who abandoned them. He says that even in their sin, he called out to his people and he beckoned to them. And when he did, no one answered. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? See, God reaches out and beckons to them because he does not want a distance to exist between him and his people. Yes, there was a distance between them that was caused by Israel's sin, but that distance was not there with the intention to destroy the relationship that he has with his people. Yes, the distance, uh, but Israel's sin does incur God's wrath, but he doesn't inflict punishment on them purely as payment for their sins. God loves his people enough to work with them and in their sin. As part of working through that sin, God uses just discipline of his children for the purpose of humbling them and bringing them back to himself. See, the mark that God truly loves his people is that even in their sin and in the distance they created from him, God persists. He is faithful to his people. God sits with arms open, ready and willing to restore their relationship. And if there was any question as to whether God has the ability to restore their relationship, to defeat their oppressors, to make good on his promises, or to bring countless people to his nation, he qualifies himself saying, Behold, my rebuke, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. God's power is incomprehensible to us. And it extends surely to the point of being able to restore his broken relationship with his people. I think we can see a lot of this in our own lives where the distance that we feel from God is really on us and not on him. Firstly, God points out our sin creates distance between us and God by its very nature. We all know that there are worldly consequences to our sin, some bigger than others, but the biggest consequence for any sin is that it drives a wedge between us and God. The communication channels get blocked because our focus is taken away from him and given more wholly to the world. Once 
we turn to a sin once as well, we're more easily we easy, more easily turn to it again um, the second time and the third time and the fourth time. And that drives a bigger wedge between us and God. So we know that the distance between us and God is not because of God and because of us. And we push God out of our lives the more that we reach for the things of this world. And just like God assures Israel that he's waiting with open arms to restore their relationship, he does the same for us. We've talked about this a lot in the growth group that I'm a part of. Um, But if any of you are like me, I know in my head God is waiting and willing and ready to restore his relationship with me. And I know he wants nothing more in the world than to forgive me of my sin, but I find it hard to believe in my heart that he wants to forgive my sin. And because I find it hard to believe that I feel like I need to impose some kind of punishment on myself to make up for the sin that I've committed against God. The way my brain works, I find it hard to forgive myself for the sin I commit. And if I find it hard, why wouldn't God find it even more difficult to forgive me? He's sinless. He created me. He calls me to righteousness, so my, sh- my sin should be unforgivable. He has no room for sin. But God doesn't think like you and me, and his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, praise God. He sent his son as propitiation for our sins and paid for them already. And his payment was more than enough for our sin, so we don't need to impose any sort of punishment to make up for it because we can't make up for it. We can't make up anything to God. And whether you think like me or you have your own reasons as to why you find it hard to accept God's grace and mercy that he bestows on us so willingly and so freely, Why continue to think like that? All God wants from us is to return to him. That's all he wanted from the Israelites. And Isaiah and so many other Old Testament passages and prophecies, God speaks to his nation and pleads with them to turn from their ways and to turn towards God. He says that when they turn back to him, he would have mercy and relent from exacting his wrath upon them. God is faithfully waiting to restore his relationship with you as well. Receive that open invitation and allow yourself to be in his presence whether you feel worthy or not. In closing, I think it's easy to discuss what God's plans are for Israel and to see his faithfulness displayed, but we might overlook the question, why does God do this for Israel? And the answer is really simple. Israel is God's chosen people, and God is faithful to his people. Israel feels as though God has pushed them away, that he's distanced himself from them, even though in reality they've pushed God out of their lives. But God still waits to faithfully restore the relationship with his people. Israel doesn't have faith that God will follow through on any of his promises, but God's promises don't rely 
on the faith of his people. God's promises rely on his faithfulness to his people, which is never failing. Israel hasn't earned the faithfulness from God, and their history is riddled with sin, but God is faithful to provide mercy and forgiveness to his people because he wants to restore that relationship. I also want to take a second just to point something out that might be skipped when discussing God's faithfulness. If we take a second to think about what God's faithfulness says about how he views his people, if we look at it in our own lives, are there people in your life that you would constantly have on your mind, that you would make plans for that are beyond their wildest dreams, that you would defend with everything you have even to the point of death while they're blatantly backstabbing, ignoring, and distancing themselves from you? Um, If any of you do have a relationship like that, I'll probably want to talk with you a little bit after uh, the service. But to you, that person would need to have more value than almost anything else in your life. It's incomprehensible how much God values you and how much he values his relationship with you. He loves you beyond any experience of love that we can attain here on this earth. He's faithful to you in a way that you will never be able to wrap your mind around. His faithfulness causes the oppressed to realize that God's compassion is still available. It encourages the discouraged because we can know and have confidence that God will fulfill his promises. And although life may be difficult today, on some tomorrow, God will bring a new day when his enemies will be defeated and every person on earth will acknowledge and glorify the God of Israel. That future hope should motivate every believer to think on, to take comfort in, and to trust the promises that God has provided to his people. It should drive every believer to truly believe in the power that God has. It should reorient each Christian to not put their faith in hope of the things of this world, but to put it on the rock. Let's not give up hope because of the trials and tribulations of this life, but let's think on how truly God is the Savior, the Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob who is worthy of complete trust. Let's pray. Lord, in this world, we can often feel alone. For one, we are sinners and often push you away, leaning into this world to provide for us instead of leaning into your provision. Not only are we sinners, but this world is also filled with sin and we can see it all around us day in and day out. It can be exhausting to see the brokenness in the news, in our cities, at our workplaces, in our family. But Lord, we know that in all of that, you do not move farther from us. You do not distance yourself. You love us with a greater love than a parent has for their children. You have engraved us in your hand, 
that you will never forget about us and have us constantly before you. Lord, you have plans for us and your people that you will see through to fruition regardless of the obstacles that could prevent them from taking place. And we know that those plans are not to abandon us, but are plans to bring forth purpose, hope, joy, and so much more that goes beyond what we could see or accomplish on our own. You have these plans for us despite the way that we treat you and the way that we pursue you. While we were still sinners, Lord, you sent your Son to die for our sins, to live a totally righteous life, to pay the ransom that we owed, and provide us forgiveness that is not provided with any qualifiers or requirements. It's freely given to us. And you wait with anticipation to restore any broken relationship, not out of disappointment, but out of pure joy. Lord, may we contemplate your faithfulness more in our lives, that we may be driven to believe more in your power, to put our faith and hope in you, and to be given a hope that cannot be taken away no matter what the circumstances are in life. Amen. Let's sing one more song.